And again, if you're new to the catechism, it has been divided up. All the questions have been divided up for us into 52 Lord's Days so that we would cover the doctrines of the Christian faith over the course of a calendar year. And kind of amazingly, we have arrived today to Lord's Day 34. Now, question 92 is, what is God's law? And the answer to that is the Ten Commandments. We're going to sing the commandments at the end of the service. We're learning that uh, from our Trinity Psalter hymnal, singing it for the first time today. That's a long-standing practice in the churches of the Reformation. So we're going to learn that later. So in order not to repeat ourselves uh, needlessly, we will skip the answer to question and answer 92. Let's go to 93. We'll read these responsively. How are these commandments divided? Into two tables. The first has four commandments, teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures, that I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Amen. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. Let's ask for the Spirit's help now to do just that. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger now and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, in order that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Last week, we focused on knowing what good works are. What is a good work? How do we know that what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're thinking is a good work in the sight of God? And we discovered in Scripture three requirements. That they are to be done out of true faith. They are to be conformed to God's law. And they are to be done for His glory. That is what constitutes a good work. So it is not... Works that are done out of our own opinion or human traditions, but only for the glory of God and according to His law. Well, very naturally, then, our catechism moves on to say, well, what is God's law? What is God's law? And question and answer 92 gives us the Ten Commandments. That is the law, the summary of the law, that we are to conform our works to. Now then... I want us all to see very clearly what the role of the Ten Commandments are. 
in your life? What is the role of the Ten Commandments in your life? If you are not a Christian, then this law condemns you. It is the perfect and righteous and unchanging standard of holiness. And it must be obeyed perfectly. And if you have not obeyed it perfectly, and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this law stands on the last day, not in your defense, but in your accusation to condemn. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, He has fulfilled the law's demands in your place, and He has shed His blood for all the transgressions against these commandments, so that now the law comes to you in this life, loved ones, as a sweet guide for Christian obedience. We say now with the psalmist that the law of God is sweet like honey. We love His law. We meditate upon it day and night. And in doing so, we find blessing because Christ has obeyed it perfectly for our sakes. It's the same law that it was before, but as the old hymn says, Jesus has quenched Sinai's flame. The flame now no longer comes to consume. It consumed Jesus in our place. And now the commandments come to us as a guide for Christian obedience. What is a good work? It must be conformed to this law. To these good commandments. And today we begin looking at each of these commandments in earnest. The first is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Obeying this commandment requires that we know God. We must know the only true God. And that is the first point of this message this evening. That we must know the only true God... Secondly, we will learn how to identify the idols in our lives. And third, we will learn how to get rid of them. So first, knowing the only true God. Question and answer 94 of the Catechism gives us this very full answer of what having no other gods means. There's a whole bunch packed into that question and answer. I want to zero in on the phrase that says that I rightly know the only true God. In the Bible, having a knowledge of God goes well beyond knowing certain things about him, to be taught certain things about him. It goes beyond that. That is, of course, crucial. We need to know the facts about God. What does God reveal to us about himself? We've got to know that. That's why we teach the catechism. That's why we did our recitation day today. We ought to know these facts and figures about God. But knowledge of God is meant to be the knowledge of experience and the knowledge of relationship. It is the knowledge of experience and the knowledge of relationship. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, the Lord says that all who know the Lord will be forgiven their sins. He's prophesying about the new covenant, and he says, all will know the Lord from the least to the greatest, and I will forgive them of their transgressions. Why is that? Is it because your sins are forgiven if you know facts about God? No, you have to trust those facts about God. The knowledge that Scripture gives to you about God, you must trust in. That's true faith. It's not only a true knowledge, 
But it is a wholehearted trust. We trust in the Lord as well. We have come to experience this God. And we have come to have a covenant relationship with Him. Knowledge of God is the knowledge of experience and the knowledge of a relationship. Historic Madison is the organization that owns this building. So they are landlords. And they own a whole bunch of buildings around town. And um, you probably have not had the pleasure of meeting David Cart yet. But David is the, uh, the preservationist, the main maintenance painter and preservationist for Historic Madison. An extremely gifted man. And he spends a lot of time in all the buildings that he is uh, in charge of in terms of maintenance. He spends time doing what he calls detective work as he comes up to a wall that has uh, begun to rot or the paint has begun to chip or it's been painted over or papered over so many times. But he wants to preserve it back to its original state as best as possible. So he goes on, on the search for what it looks like and he takes paint samples and he looks all over the walls. He looks into the corners. He, he looks at old photographs. He stands in the room until he figures out as best he can what the room looked like at the beginning. And then once he has his patterns down and knows the figures, then he begins to paint. And his work is amazing. If you were worshiping with us when we were back at St. John's, he painted all those intricate patterns on the walls that looked like shadows and, and so forth. He's restoring St. Michael's Roman Catholic Church as well. He's doing similar work over there. He's done it many times. He knows his buildings. He knows every inch of them. He knows everything there is to know about them. He's covered the ground. He has sat there. He's meditated upon it. And it is that kind of knowledge that the Bible speaks about when it talks about knowing God. You know, I know one or two things about this building. I don't know it like the preservationist who painted the building. We are to come to God not knowing just a few things about Him, but to know Him by experience and to know Him in relationship. And the reason why this is part of the Catechism's answer about idolatry and about knowing God in obeying the first commandment is that when we come to grow in this kind of knowledge, it exposes our idols. When we know God and we come to know Him deeper, it exposes our idols. This is at least part of what Paul is getting at in our reading from 1 Thessalonians. As he's praising the believers in Thessalonica. And he says to them, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. The Thessalonian Christians were taught the doctrines of the gospel. They were taught a pattern of sound doctrine. We see that pattern of sound doctrine throughout Paul's letters. He gave them the facts and the figures. But it didn't come only in word. They came to know God in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. They experienced God. They came to know Him, not as some God, but their own God. Their own God. And Paul goes on to say, therefore, and listen, this is the connection now with idolatry, knowledge of God and idolatry. He says, as a consequence, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How was it that they got rid of their idols? Did Paul threaten them with a whip? No. 
The Christians had no power at this point. There was no way he could have coerced them to get rid of their idols at all. In fact, to get rid of your idols meant riots started. Just read Acts chapter 19. A riot started because they, they thought the Christians were coming after their idols. These Christians willingly got rid of their idols because they had come to know God experientially and relationally by the power of the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. The main author of our catechism, Zacharias Ursinus, as he comments on this section of the catechism, he's saying that knowledge of God is not just, it's not only knowing his works and his word, but, quote, it is to be moved and stirred by this knowledge to trust, love, fear, and worship this one true God. So brothers and sisters, we must know the only true God. That's the main thrust of what it means to obey the first commandment. To have no other gods before him means you know him. You know the one true God. Secondly, we must also, in order to obey this commandment, we must identify the idols in our lives. We just saw that the Thessalonian Christians turned from their own idols to serve the living God. That meant that they had to identify their idols in the first place. Now, in the first century Greco-Roman world, I imagine that wasn't so difficult. You go find your household gods and you burn them. Wherever they were, in your shrine, whatever whatever they looked like, you go find them and get rid of them. Um, You know, even today, it's becoming simple like that because paganism is on the rise. And physical idolatry is not some ancient, faraway thing now. This is happening in the... the, the, uh, in the West, in a way that it hasn't in some time. So perhaps it really is basically that simple in our own day, in a way. But idolatry is also and primarily a matter of the heart. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. John Calvin famously said, you're, you're going to hear this so much, it's quoted all the time, because Reformed people can't stop quoting John Calvin. Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory. Your heart manufactures idols. It has been born and conceived in sin, Psalm 51 tells us. And our hearts are bent inward on themselves, and we we almost can't help ourselves. We certainly cannot help ourselves, except for the help of the Spirit of God, to make things in place of God, and to bow down to them, as it were, in our hearts. So whether or not we have physical idols that we bow down to with our knees, we certainly have idols of the heart. Everyone does. What is an idol? Question and answer 95 gets one of the most practical and best answers, in my opinion, in the entire catechism. Question and answer 95 says that an idol is having or inventing something in which one trusts, in place of, or alongside of, the only true God, who has revealed himself in his word. This is so helpful because I think that we tend to think of idols only as that first kind. That it's something that you're trusting in totally in place of God. Something that you are completely, in an all-encompassing way, 
replacing God with. You know, it would be easy to see that if someone in our congregation created an idol of Baal, we'd all say, you know, I think you've replaced God. Replace the one true God. It would be obvious. It'd be all-encompassing. An idol might not be that obvious. Because very often we are trusting in something alongside of God. We convince ourselves that we are still serving and trusting God, but all the while we're blind to the idol that has begun to capture our hearts. And so the Catechism says you can replace God with an idol, or you can worship something alongside of God, and it is all idolatry. God will not share his glory with another. The psalmists say, who is like you, O God? And the the answer is no one. There is no one like our God. He is the one true and living God, and he will not tolerate rivals to replace him or to be served alongside him. Think of the Israelites of Exodus chapter 32. They had just been brought out of Egypt. They had seen the salvation of their God. And now Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai. And as they're waiting down below, they get impatient. And so they construct a golden calf. Now, in a sense, that's the obvious kind of idol. It's an obvious kind of idol. Because it has taken the place of the only true God. But we have to remember the culture that they lived in, the culture they had just been saved out of, polytheistic, many gods, many idols, many images of of these false gods all over the place. And they had been there for 430 years. And so what we find, kind of shockingly in this passage, is also that more subtle kind of idolatry going on. They thought that they were worshiping the Lord God through this calf. Listen to this. In Exodus 32, verse 5, it says, Aaron built an altar before the calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. To whom? To the Lord, to Yahweh. He uses the covenant name of God, and he says, We're going to have this altar here before this calf, and tomorrow we'll have a big feast to the Lord. That is worship. That's trusting in something alongside of the only true God. It's a subtle kind of idolatry. And it took a confrontation from Moses, a pretty stark confrontation from him, in order for them to identify this thing properly as an idol. Well, brothers and sisters, in order for us to identify our own idols, here's the question that confronts us today. What do I trust in as much as I trust in the Lord or more? What do I trust in as much as I trust in the Lord or more so? That question helps us to suddenly realize that an idol can be and often is a good thing. We take the good gifts of God that come to us as a blessing from His grace and we bow down to them in our hearts. The whole creation is a blessing, 
All creation is good. And Paul says in Romans 1 that we have served the creator, the creature, instead of the creator. We have exchanged the glory of God for mere creatures and images. We are called to love our fellow man. That's true. Indeed, that is the case. We're commanded to love our fellow man. But Jeremiah warns, Cursed is the man who trusts in man or finds his strength in flesh whose heart turns away from the Lord. There's the turn. It is one thing to love your fellow man in obedience to God's commands. It is another thing to trust them for your spiritual salvation. Brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus is so stark and uncompromising in his teaching on this matter. He says in Matthew 10 that we read about earlier, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is your life good? Yes, it is good. Is your father and mother good? Yes, you must honor your father and mother. Are your children good? Yes, they're a blessing from the Lord. Is your job good? Yes, it is how you provide. These things are good gifts from God, and yet the same God who gives us these blessings also says, do not love these things more than me. And do not trust these things more than me. So brothers and sisters, know God. Come to experience Him. And your idols will be exposed. And it'll hurt. But what is given in exchange for getting rid of these idols is a deeper experience of God. Lastly, this evening, we get rid of our idols. To know God and to expose our idols means that we must also get rid of them. The commandments guide you as you identify and seek to get rid of your idols. And the commandments help you to make this distinction that we've already started to get at. Every idol is one of two things. It is either a wicked thing altogether that you're trusting in. So this would be things like straight up pagan practices, physical idolatry, superstitious trinkets and other rites and rituals. That's all idolatry. Um, engaging in things that the Bible expressly calls immoral. This is idolatry. So expressly wicked things on the one hand, but there's a distinction. The other category is good things elevated too high. Good things that become, I don't know who said this. Somebody said it and it's pretty good. Good things that become God things. Good things that become God things. Your job, your money, your relationships. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. There's the distinction. The law helps you to see this distinction. But brothers and sisters, the law is powerless to help you get rid of those idols. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ gives you the power to get rid of your idols. You need good news. That Christ has died for sinners that he's obeyed the law in your place. Only that news will expel the idols of your heart and of your hands. And here is that gospel as it comes in the Old Testament. It begins the commandments. I am the Lord your God. 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Only then, after proclaiming this gospel, does God then say, so therefore have no other gods. I'm the God who saved you. I brought you out. I delivered you with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Loved ones in Christ, when you come to identify your idols, you must then ask, can these things deliver me from sin and death? Even the good things. Can these things deliver me from sin and death? Will this thing that I'm trusting in, in the place of or alongside of God, will this thing be there for me in my last breath? Will it be there to carry me into the arms of my Savior? The answer is always no. Idols cannot save. They always overpromise. They never deliver. They cannot save you. An idol has not saved you, saved you from the slavery of your sin. Jesus Christ has saved you from the slavery of your sin. He has brought you out of the house of bondage. So brothers and sisters, if you identify your idols in your life, then with this explosive power through Jesus Christ, put to death your idols. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, we give you thanks for having established your covenant with believers and their children. For as you have told us, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Father, we pray that you would continue to establish your saints in this faith throughout our lives. Give us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given us and to instruct our children in knowledge and fear until we all have reached complete maturity. These things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.